The call for climate justice has become a rallying cry of the emergent global climate movement. As a slogan, it was heard around the globe on September 20th, 2019, when more than 4 million students and sympathizers assembled for the largest ever climate strike in history. But what exactly is climate justice? So uh, this is the question that I want to raise in today's talk. And this talk is part of the student lecture series. So thanks to everyone involved and do check out the other talks as well. Now, I think it is important to note that for a long time, philosophers have more or less ignored climate change, even though it is very likely the most severe threat to human survival ever. There are, of course, a few exceptions to this, um, the field of climate ethics, for instance, and more recently, a revival of Marxist approaches. Nevertheless, the climate crisis that is unfolding at this very moment remains very much unthinkable to use the wording of Bengali author Amitav Ghosh. Now, some might argue that this is all right, and I myself have heard this argument quite often, even amongst uh, climate philosophers. They argue that empirically the state of affairs is obviously so bad there's little time for a theoretical debates in light of a crisis that is already claiming lives at a rate beyond imagination. At a recent conference on environmental philosophy in Vienna, The organizers had invited a young student representing the Fridays for Future climate strike movement um, to give a talk. Most philosophers present were enthused to listen to someone actually doing work on the ground, an interest that was reflected in the extensive uh, Q&A session that followed the presentation. In one of the questions, one academic finally raised the problem that many in the people in the room seemed to ponder. After voicing his support for the climate movement, he asked students, activists, as philosophers, how can we support your movement? What do you want us to think about? The activist's reply was brief. Don't think, act. So I've heard expressions of this viewpoint countless times, even among people who are working within the field of environmental ethics themselves. I actually disagree with this premise, and I think that theory and reflection are still very much needed, because evidently just acting on the crisis itself doesn't necessarily seem to help preventing it. Surely, to many, the year 2019 has constituted somewhat of a breakthrough in getting the climate and ecological crisis that our planet is facing the attention and media coverage that it deserves. Teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg was just named the person of the year by Time magazine. The year has also seen unprecedented mobilization around climate change around the world, with more than six million people taking to the streets during the Climate Action Week in September alone. Local and national governments all around the globe responded to the growing pressure by declaring climate emergencies and implementing policy measures aimed at mitigating further damage and adapting to the climate crisis. Yet on the other hand, global carbon emissions once more reached an all-time high in 2019, smashing the previous record from 2018. At the recent COP25 conference, big polluters once more thwarted effective climate action on an international level. The month of June through August marked the hottest summer ever on record in the Northern Hemisphere. Wildfires in California and Australia, as well as the Amazon rainforest, Cyclone Idai, 
the 2019 Southeast Asian haze, indicate that although millions of people are concerned with acting upon the climate crisis, it nevertheless is accelerating every year. So I believe that a climate justice movement that doesn't develop at least some kind of analysis of the kind of crisis it is fighting will remain ineffective at best, if not actively make things worse. And I think philosophy can contribute a lot here. Thus, in this talk, I want to think a little more about what climate justice means. I'll start off with a short history of how folks doing climate ethics have usually thought about climate justice. I then turn to what I think is lacking oftentimes in this conversation and why I believe that epistemic justice might offer as a helpful framework to think through some of these issues. Part one, from environmental to climate justice. Historically, climate justice theory and the climate justice movement were preceded by decades of theorizing and organizing around environmental justice. In North America, instances like the Memphis sanitation strike of 1968, when more than a thousand mostly black sanitation workers went on strike to protest dangerous working conditions and poor pay, and the 1982 sit-in against a toxic landfill in Warren County, brought issues of environmental injustice and environmental racism to the fore, and inspired first empirical studies on the disproportionate impact that environmental issues have on marginalized communities. In the Global South, movements like the Chipko Movement, a movement led by peasant women to halt deforestation in the North Indian region of Uttarakhand, and the movement of emancipation of the Ogoni people in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, MOSOP, and its struggle against the crimes perpetrated by Royal Dutch Shell confronted and theorized a similar nexus of social and environmental matters. As anthropogenic climate change has since come to be recognized as the perhaps most dangerous environmental crisis, the term climate justice was coined to refer to injustices specifically linked to climate change. It seems that the term was first used in an academic context by Edith Brown Weiss in a book on intergenerational justice in 1989. The concept was then famously picked up in a 1999 report titled Greenhouse Gangsters vs. Climate Justice and just a couple of years later enshrined institutionally through the Bali Principles of Climate Justice, which were adopted by the World Summit on Sustainable Development 2002 in Johannesburg. As David Schlossberg and Lizette Collins point out, events like Hurricane Katrina played an important role in shifting the environmental justice movement's focus to climate justice in the early 2000s. Ever since, both the emerging climate justice movement and a mounting body of research have picked up on the term climate justice. The relationship between social movements fighting for and theorists writing about environmental and climate justice has never been free of complications. The term climate justice, for instance, was initially seen by many environmental justice campaigners as a dangerous abstraction and distortion of a more holistic environmental justice framework. So they criticized that climate justice frameworks seem to be too accommodating to market responses such as carbon pricing, which critics argued were likely to hurt the poor and vulnerable populations the most. Despite these early critiques, an increasingly grassroots-oriented climate justice movement has emerged since as the perhaps most powerful social movement in the present-day global north. 
On the theoretical side, a number of philosophers stress the importance of connecting ideal theories from the academic community and claims articulated by social movements. Others, though, seem to implicitly or explicitly frame climate justice as a policy issue to be resolved by policymakers within existing international governance structures. This tension is also reflected in some of the theoretical approaches to climate justice that we'll consider in the following chapter. Part 2. Climate justice as distributive justice. Traditionally, discussions of climate injustice have focused on the fact that the effects of the unfolding climate crisis are distributed unequally. In the words of Sunita Narayan, one of the pioneering theorists of climate justice, I quote, The poorest people are in the worst position to address emissions that contribute to climate change as they are the most vulnerable to its effects. Quote. Countless studies in different contexts have shown that not only the poor but also other marginalized demographics, including women, people of color, future generations, and non-human animals, are disproportionately affected by the direct and indirect effects of the climate crisis, for which they are least responsible. Thus, climate justice has typically been understood as an issue of distributive justice, centering the equal distribution of the benefits and burdens of the climate crisis. For time reasons, I'll have to brush over the literature review here, I'll just point out that distributive justice goes back to the work of John Rawls. Distributive justice, equity or ethics does, I quote, concern the way in which benefits and burdens should be distributed in a population comprising persons with competing claims. Quote. This has been the principal dimension of most theories of climate justice, which have focused on questions such as how should rights and responsibilities in the climate crisis be distributed or who should pay for the mitigation of and the adaptation to the harms caused by climate change. Illustrative of this focus, Stephen Gardiner, who is one of the most famous theorists of uh, climate justice, concludes in his influential review of early literature on climate justice that, I quote, core ethical issue concerning global warming is that of how to allocate the costs and benefits of greenhouse gas emissions and abatement. End quote. These questions of distributive justice are usually debated along two main vectors. On the one hand, they are discussed as a matter of global distributive justice, so the rich nations don't pay their fair share. And on the other hand, as a matter of intergenerational distributive justice, so the fact that we're inflicting harm upon future generations um, who can't really do anything about that. Now, these are obviously important dimensions of the climate crisis. And recently, some writers have even expanded the scope of climate justice theorizing a little bit uh, so as to include approaches that take into account rights and capabilities and also procedural justice. So rather than asking what is climate justice, they ask what is the most just procedure to get there to achieve this outcome. What these theories have usually ignored, though, is the dimension of knowledge and knowledge production, including knowledge distribution. And that's actually quite surprising because by now uh, a lot of books and articles have been published on climate change denial and how big corporations have been funding um, these sort of misinformation campaigns and research. So those alone uh, would be interesting cases to consider, um, also for climate ethics. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, for instance, has written a lot about that. 
But what I want to do here um, is to try to think about a broader and more general framework through which we can think about issues of knowledge and knowledge production in the case of uh, climate justice. And luckily, some philosophers have already thought a lot about these issues, even if they usually haven't done so in the context of the climate crisis. So in the next part, I'm going to talk a little bit about epistemic justice and see how we can maybe apply the idea of epistemic justice in the context of the climate crisis. Part 3. Climate injustice and epistemic injustice. Epistemic injustice refers to, I quote, injustice done to somebody specifically in their capacity as a knower, end quote. First coined and popularized by philosopher Miranda Fricker in her 2007 book Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing, the term draws attention to the ways in which certain knowledges and ways of knowing are being marginalized through the imposition of dominant knowledge systems over others. Fricker distinguishes between two kinds of epistemic injustice. On the one hand, there is testimonial injustice, which refers to cases in which someone is not believed for who they are. For example, a someone's testimony is not taken seriously because they are a woman. On the other hand, Fricker introduces the term hermeneutical injustice, which relates to cases in which people's experiences aren't well understood even by themselves, for example, because there is no vocabulary for them to accurately express their experience. She gives the example of the invention of the term sexual harassment, which gave survivors thereof an important hermeneutical resource to better understand their experiences, which they had often found difficult to articulate. Building on Fricker's work, philosopher José Medina further argues that epistemic injustices are always linked to systematic social injustices. I quote, In a situation of oppression, epistemic relations are screwed up. Inequality is the enemy of knowledge. It handicaps our capacity to know and to learn from each other. Social injustices breed epistemic injustices, or rather, these two kinds of injustice are two sides of the same coin, always going together, being mutually supportive and reinforcing each other, end of quote. Now, we know that the climate crisis goes hand in hand with many social injustices. In fact, it is predicated upon social injustice. So if Medina's right, we would have to expect that it is also linked to various instances of epistemic injustice. For people who are not convinced by this proposition, I recommend reading Andreas Malm's formidable study of the emergence of the fossil economy, titled Fossil Capitalism. Malm argues that social relations and specifically property relations were indeed central to the rise of a mode of production that promoted the excessive use of fossil fuels and the deforestation that caused the climate crisis to occur. Malm demonstrates that large-scale combustion of fossil fuels is not the result of the actualization of a long-dormant permaniac inclination inherent to human nature, but that it is the outcome of a specific type of class antagonism that characterized 19th century English society. So instances like the general strike of 1842 across the United Kingdom, also known as the plug plot riots, because workers sabotaged a large number of steam engines in its course, attest to the fact that this shift was accompanied by fierce social conflict. And this trend continues throughout history. 
According to Timothy Mitchell, the large-scale shift from coal to oil and gas that occurred in the 20th century in many countries was similarly motivated by political considerations and the desire to break the bargaining power of organized coal miners and the left more broadly. Deforestation, which is the other major factor driving climate change besides greenhouse gas emissions, has also been linked to the conditions of capitalism and colonialism. In summary, anthropogenic climate change is predicated upon unjust social relations. The contention that the climate crisis is playing out primarily in the atmosphere, far away from human social relations, is therefore not only a distorted portrayal of its workings, it is part of the problem. So in the following two chapters, I want to look at the climate crisis through the lens of Fricker's two categories of epistemic injustice, testimonial and hermeneutical injustice. Part 4. Testimonial Climate Justice On June 23, 1988, a 47-year-old NASA scientist delivered a path-breaking testimony to the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. The scientist, who had been studying global temperatures for years, announced that he could declare with 99% confidence that the recent surge in global temperatures was a result of human activity. He also warned that a further increase in global temperatures would considerably increase the likelihood of extreme weather events, such as heat waves. Soon after, the first public debate about climate change erupted. Until today... James Hansen's testimony is remembered as the first warning to a mass audience about global warming and one of the key moments in the history of climate change. Hansen, however, was not the first person to address a public body and to issue a warning on the looming catastrophic effects of climate change. Among the many forgotten stories, one is that of Anga Angak Anga Korsuak, an Eskimo Kalaalit elder from Greenland, who goes by the name Uncle. Long before the world came to be aware of climate change, Uncle's elders had observed the increased melting of the Greenland ice sheet with great concern. They knew it would have catastrophic consequences for the entire planet. In 1978, ten years before Hansen's hearing, they sent Uncle to speak to the governments of the world and to warn them. Uncle indeed traveled to New York and issued a stern warning at the United Nations. Unfortunately, no one listened. The ignorance towards Uncle's warning and its subsequent burial in the historiography of the climate crisis is illustrative of what Miranda Fricker calls testimonial injustice. According to Fricker, testimonial injustice is grounded in prejudice. I quote, Broadly speaking, prejudicial dysfunction in testimonial practice can be of two kinds. Either the prejudice results in the speakers receiving more credibility than she otherwise would have, a credibility excess, or it results in her receiving less credibility than she otherwise would have, a credibility deficit. In the case of climate change and climate justice, some knowers, especially male scientists affiliated with eminent institutions like NASA scientist James Hansen, are attributed more credibility than others, for instance, indigenous representatives like Uncle. This reflects a general trend. Mainstream knowledge production on climate change and its effects still overwhelmingly located in the global north. In a 2010 study of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, Mike Homer and Martin Mahoney found that in spite of increased attention paid to such issues, 
the proportion of IPCC authors and reviewers from OECD versus non-OECD nations has not changed. Along similar lines, a 2017 study by Frank Biermann and Ina Möller, specifically in the area of climate engineering, concluded that knowledge production around climate engineering remains heavily dominated by the major research institutions in North America and Europe. The same holds true for climate justice theorizing itself. With a few notable exceptions, the overwhelming majority of works that are considered canonic in the climate justice discourse were written by white men affiliated with renowned universities in the global north. It seems that knowledge production related to climate change is not only blatantly provincial, but ironically, the strata of society that are historically most responsible for climate change and profited the most from the destruction of the global climatic system are nevertheless attributed most knowledge about this process, its solutions and the ethical issues accompanying it. From an epistemic justice perspective, this conjuncture does not only in itself constitute an injustice, it also makes little sense. As José Meina states, those in socially privileged positions might be better off in many ways. However, they are at an epistemic disadvantage when it comes to accessing knowledge about situations of oppression. At least in the context of climate change denial, this hypothesis has repeatedly been confirmed empirically. A study by Aaron McCride and Riley E. Dunlap found that in the United States of America, 59% of conservative white men, as compared to only 36% of all other adults, agreed that there is no scientific consensus that global warming is occurring. On the contrary, people who identify as women or as non-white are more likely to acknowledge anthropogenic climate change and to worry about it. As Andreas Mann points out, The finding of McCride and Dunlap have been broadly confirmed in other parts of the world as well, from Sweden and New Zealand to Brazil, with slight variations in the determining power of ideology, gender, race and income. Most Western scientists and technocrats, which the mainstream climate justice movement still designates as the primary knowledge careers and actors in this crisis, are therefore predictably at an epistemic disadvantage. In the word of Standing Rock Sioux scholar Vine Deloria Jr., I quote, One of the maxims of recent Western civilization has been to declare something to be academic, meaning that intelligent solutions to problems are in fact illusory because they are devised by people sheltered from the realities of daily life. End of quote. Not surprisingly, the impacts of climate change in countries in the global south remain understudied in comparison to the global north, notwithstanding the fact that these countries will be amongst the most severely affected by the climate crisis. Due to this lack of data, the IPCC often rates its predictions concerning Africa, South America and Asia as low confidence, which in turn is one of the reasons that IPCC reports are often criticized for being too conservative. With regards to climate justice, this begs the question, whose climate crisis is it addressing? Understanding climate justice as an issue of testimonial justice would mean to recognize that the disproportional exclusion of marginalized voices in its theorization is both unjust and unjustified. And it would mean to acknowledge that certain marginalized actors are in an epistemically privileged position in knowing often about the climate crisis. According to Miranda Fricker, the virtue of testimonial justice requires reflexive critical awareness of the likely presence of prejudice, uh, 
in order to serve as a corrective force to potential biases. Thus, when taken seriously, a testimonial justice perspective on climate justice amounts to nothing but a fundamental revolution in the way the climate crisis is viewed. It means to recognize that the so-called global south, which for a long time was thought to be tracking behind the curve of universal history, always in deficit, always playing catch-up, might in fact be the first to feel the concrete effects of world historical processes, including the climate crisis, and thus in many ways prefigure the future of the former metropoli. So this is the argument made by Jean and John Komarov in their book Theory from the South. Beyond that, as Kyle Paus White writes, I quote, In the absence of a concern for addressing colonialism, Climate justice advocates do not really propose solutions to climate change that are that much better for indigenous well-being than the proposed inaction of even the most strident climate change deniers, end quote. There are, of course, important limitations to this argument. Ultimately, positionality does not warrant truth, and ecological knowledge is not genetically mapped in one's blood, as the critique of the stereotypical trope of the ecological Indian reminds us. The looming dangers of atavism, the uncritical yearning for an idealized past, and a nativism that connects ethnicity and land in a way that is reminiscent of the blood and soil ideology of Nazi Germany, deserve our critical attention. In India, for instance, Hindu nationalists have co-opted parts of the environmental movement, promoting a discourse that glorifies Brahmanical tradition and associates ecology with Hindu values of purity, order, and discipline, while ascribing pollution to perceived outsiders, the West, Dalits, Muslims, and Christians. So being aware of these criticisms, I think it is still important to point out the striking absence of marginalized voices from the discourse that is supposed to make sense of the injustice done to them. I've focused mainly on the sort of north-south divide in research practices and theory making, but of course there are other factors too. For instance, the way in which people responded to the demands and claims of the climate strike movement and the speeches of Greta Thunberg can also be understood as issues of testimonial injustice. Here I think the factor of age plays a bigger role. But epistemic justice and epistemic injustice do not end here. We also have to consider the way in which the crisis is commonly talked about and how we might understand this as a matter of hermeneutical injustice. Part 5. Hermeneutical climate justice. According to Fricker, hermeneutical injustice occurs when there is a deficit in our shared tools of social interpretation, such that marginalized social groups are at a disadvantage in making sense of their distinctive and important experiences. Climate justice becomes a question of hermeneutical justice insofar as in various situations mainstream climate justice frameworks deny the victims of climate-related injustice the vocabulary to make sense of their experiences. Here I'm referring specifically to situations which I call climate justice injustices, instances in which crimes and injustices are committed in the name of climate justice. Often these injustices are rooted in a failure to acknowledge the realities of those already vulnerable to climate change. Consider the injustices perpetrated in the context of some so-called carbon offsetting projects. The idea behind carbon offsetting is to make up for 
unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions by cutting emissions or storing carbon elsewhere in the world. For example, through the promotion of renewable energy, afforestation and other projects. Many companies and governments use carbon offsetting as part of their efforts to achieve carbon neutrality. From an abstract mainstream climate justice perspective, carbon offsetting represents a cost-effective means of compensating for unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions, and thus a means of reducing the harmful impact that climate change has on marginalized communities and future generations. Climate ethicist Dale Jameson puts it the following way. The atmosphere does not care where emissions occur. Indeed, climate ethicists like John Broom have defended carbon offsetting on various occasions. In Climate Matters, Ethics in a Warming World, Broom writes, I quote, Offsetting is remarkably cheap. This is one of the reasons I recommend it as a better way to avoid injustice than trying to compensate the people whom your emissions harm, end of quote. But there's another side to the story. Due to the lower cost, carbon offsetting projects are often located in the global south and in many cases ridden with conflicts, contradictions and lies. In Brazil, for instance, the local communities affected by the Guaracuaceba Climate Action Project and the Puras Red Project, two carbon offsetting projects have long been fighting for justice. In both cases, the communities involved did not sign up to be part of the carbon offsetting project. Instead, their land was acquired by large corporations who accused the local populations of encroaching land and cutting down trees and forced them to give up their smallholder farms on which traditional land uses depend for subsistence. The emissions supposedly saved by this procedure continue to be commercialized and sold on the carbon markets, such as the European Union's emission trading scheme. Such contradictions result from a climate justice perspective that remains abstract and does not transcend the nation-state as the primary unit of analysis. At this point, critics could object that dimension climate justice injustice does not actually stem from a certain epistemic ignorance that fails to fundamentally acknowledge the ontological realities of those already vulnerable to climate change, but that they should rather be attributed to distributive and procedural failures, especially failures in recognizing the needs of the local populations. This objection is addressed by Leah Temper in a case study of indigenous pipeline resistance in Canada titled Blocking Pipelines which makes the case that mainstream climate justice theories fall indeed short in providing an adequate framework for climate justice in a settler colonial context. She points out that, I quote, environmental justice from the outset was concerned with the distribution of environmental resources and burdens. This perspective relies on a conception of nature as a passive object that can be more justly and equitatively distributed among human populations through different property rights, allocations, etc. Such a perspective on distribution is incompatible with indigenous conceptions of nature and on human ecological relationships that call into question the view of the environment as a commodity that can be owned or traded. In other words, a vision of environmental justice that focuses solely on redistribution of lands and rights misses the point. As Yves Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang remind us, the decolonization movement's claim is that land cannot be owned in the first place. 
a demands to disband the property regime in its present form altogether. Recognition and participation as well as redistribution within a settler colonial nation-state is not the goal of communities such as the Unistotian clan of the Wet'suwet'en people in British Columbia who never ceded their land. Nor are the families and communities who were labeled deforestation agents and forcefully removed from their land through various red projects in Brazil exclusively concerned with the recognition of their land rights, which actually they, they can claim because often these families have been living on the land for more than 20 years as descendants of either the indigenous population or Robert Hepper families who had fought intensive battles against deforestation and agribusiness in past decades, they recognized the very limitations of conventional ideas of land ownership. Friends of the Earth uh, cite an anonymous indigenous informant saying, we don't see land as income. Our bond with the land is sacred because it is where we come from and where we'll return. This raises an important issue with regards to mainstream climate justice theorizing. As Yuni Pavola and Neil Edger observe, most climate justice frameworks share the assumption that property rights on the global atmosphere are the key to achieve justice. Thereby, they seem to uncritically reproduce the same property logic that is at the core of the emergence of the fossil economy. In that logic, climate justice becomes a question of the fair allocation of shares of the atmosphere amongst nation-states. Must not a sensible climate justice framework assert that the atmosphere cannot be owned in the first place? At least it should recognize the possibility of alternative ways of framing the climate crisis and climate justice. As anthropologist Anders Berman notes, such alternative vocabularies are in fact already existent in many contexts. For example, in the Aymara concept of Pacha Uzu, climate illness. Yet Berman writes, while the indigenous social movements, in conversation with the global discourse on indigeneity, have forged a rhetoric of their own, the climate movement expresses itself in an idiom more closely related to the discourse of the International Development Cooperation Community and UN climate adaptation policies. Berman illustrates this divergence at the example of a climate justice meeting in the Bolivian city of La Paz, after which indigenous activists expressed that they felt excluded by a civil society discourse far removed from the political and ontological reality of many indigenous movements. While testimonial climate justice asserts the importance of putting the perspectives and knowledges of those most affected by climate injustice at the center of climate justice theorizing, hermeneutical climate justice would underlie the importance of a climate justice vocabulary that allows those most affected by climate-related injustice to make sense of their experience beyond the language of distribution, recognition and participation. As long as mainstream climate justice frameworks deny the existence of different ontological and discursive realities, the climate justice discourse risks continuing to produce contradictions in the form of climate justice injustices and to alienate people, um, the very people it purports to serve. Part 6. Epistemic Resistance Having framed climate justice as a problem that exceeds the scope of mainstream climate justice theories, and ought to incorporate concerns of epistemic justice, 
Let's reflect upon the ways in which this conclusion affects the political praxis of the climate justice movement. How would a struggle for epistemic justice look like? José Medina proposes the term epistemic resistance to think about strategies encountering epistemic injustice. According to Medina, the task of epistemic resistance is, I quote, to bring to the fore silenced and forgotten memories, narratives and perspectives, thus producing an insurrection of subjugated knowledges, letting a plurality of epistemic perspectives be heard and remembered, functioning as epistemic counterpoints and correctives of each other, end of quote. One such strategy could be to retell the history of the climate movement as a history of resistance against colonialism and capitalism that dates back to the days of the British East India Company, rather than telling it uh, as a story of a Western movement that emanated from the bad conscience of scientists writing ineffective petition letters, as it is often told. Such historicization would also address the problem that climate change is still often seen as an exclusively meteorological crisis rather than a crisis of social relations. Furthermore, climate justice movements would do well to challenge the singular ontology of mainstream climate justice theories and to instead tolerate a plurality of ontologies and worldviews. Anders Berman calls this form of epistemic resistance ontological disobedience. However, as he himself warns, this is not an easy task. In challenging the coloniality of reality, we must be careful not to reproduce a conservative relativism that leads to nothing but the maintenance of the status quo and that bears a resemblance to climate change denial. Secondly, epistemic resistance must question the centrality of the nation-state, that is inscribed in so many mainstream climate justice frameworks. Leah Temper maintains that since the state is often the key actor pushing extractive projects, I quote, decentering the state and envisioning governance beyond its confines is an important contribution from indigenous thought that can productively unsettle environmental justice, end of quote. Such decentering of the state has profound consequences for political praxis, It implies that legislative change within a flawed system might not suffice to deliver climate justice to everyone, and it underlines the importance of recognizing direct radical action as a legitimate means in achieving climate justice. As I've noted throughout the essay, social relations and epistemic justice are inextricably linked. Thus, the latter cannot fully be achieved without addressing the fundamental injustices upon which contemporary society is built. All right, so to conclude, I've argued that mainstream theories of climate justice, whether they focus on distributive justice, procedural justice, or on rights and capability-based approaches, have so far paid insufficient attention to epistemic justice and epistemic injustice in the context of climate justice. In order to address this theoretical gap, I have proposed a framework for climate justice as epistemic justice based on Miranda Fricker's distinction between testimonial and hermeneutical epistemic injustice. I have made the argument that it is a form of testimonial injustice, that the voices of those most affected by climate injustice are often neglected in the very process of theorizing it. 
Furthermore, in some cases, mainstream climate justice frameworks themselves seem to legitimize instances of injustice, which I have called climate justice injustice. Those affected by such injustices and climate justice more broadly are thereby denied the vocabulary to express their concerns, which is an instance of hermeneutical injustice. Finally, I have addressed some of the ways in which the climate movement could address these epistemic injustices through different strategies of epistemic resistance, which could range from reframing the genealogy of the climate movement to the participation in direct action in opposition to extractive projects.